The Way Out Podcast, episode 347. What is your name? Uh, Dr. Sarah Michaud. Dr. Sarah Michaud, what was your substance of choice or DOC if you had one? <laughs> My substances were everything, but primarily <laughs> alcohol and cocaine. I had a love with cocaine. Oh, man. That, oh. Is, a, that is a powerful combination and one that can lead to a destructive cycle for sure yes absolutely and lots of money and then you have to get into legal problems because you're doing things to make money to get cocaine <laughs> yes yes <laughs> to support and feed that yes. expensive habit yes Yes. So unlike alcohol, I mean, I'm really glad for the drugs because the drugs brought me down quickly. I mean, not quickly, like eight years, but but quicker than I might have been able to drink for a long time. I don't know. It's interesting you say that because I do think that's often the case with cocaine or other yes. stimulants that yes. they can accelerate yes. the progression Yes. And if you survive it, it might be a quicker road to recovery than yes. 20, 30 years of chronic alcoholism. Yes. I mean, I, I agree because, again, the money piece leads to a lot of problems. I mean, arrests, you know, distribution charges. Uh, yeah. I tried to rob a bank once, which is a long story, but, you know, um, I mean, I've had just crazy legal problems in a very short amount of time to get money for cocaine. So, yeah. you know, I was getting into trouble, big trouble pretty early on. So big, severe external consequences. Yes. We'll definitely talk about that in the main part of the interview. Now, this is radio, so y'all can't see Dr. Sarah. But you wouldn't know it by looking at her that she tried to rob a bank, okay? <laughs> so that's very, very interesting. Check the show notes for her headshot and <laughs> you'll see what I'm saying, okay? Dr. Sarah, what is your clean and or sober date if you keep one? Yes, I got sober um, February 6th, 1984. 39 years, class of 84. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a freaking miracle. I don't know how it happened, but yeah. Yeah. Absolutely spectacular. Yep. Almost 40 years of continuous recovery. Yeah. I got sober when I was 24. Wow. A miracle. Yeah. Amazing. And I want to talk about that because in the 80s, it wasn't as common as I think it is today to get sober young. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, they had things like young people's meetings. I never did young people's meetings. There was this thing called Icky Pot. Yeah, that's still that. Yeah. yeah, that's still a thing. Yeah. Icky Pot is still a thing. But yeah, I mean, most of my pals were just, I mean, you know, were just people I met in the meetings. And most of the people I fell in love with were people that made me laugh. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, those are the people I connected with. So, um, it didn't matter how old people were, but yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Dr. Sarah, how do you serve the recovery community? 
Um, well, I do a bunch of things right now. I mean, um, I, I've sponsored tons of people over the years. I've, I've worked with addicts and alcoholics for 30 years. I just kind of am transitioning from that. And I wrote this book. And so now I, a friend and I just started a YouTube channel on codependency. And so we're trying to reach people that way. Cool. And I still sponsor people. I take that's people awesome. through the steps, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. And we are going to definitely be talking about the new book that you wrote, Co-Crazy, One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and a roadmap to freedom. Yeah. We will be talking sure. much more about that in the main part of the interview. I hope it's okay that I'm calling you Dr. Sarah. That's just like what my brain wants to do. You can but. call me, yeah, Sarah, Dr. Sarah, doesn't matter. Yeah, whatever you want to call me. I think Dr. Sarah's great. All so right. That, we're going to roll with that. <laughs> Dr. Sarah, what does recovery mean to you? You know what? I mean, I use the word freedom on the cover of the book because it's all about freedom for me. I mean, when, you know, I mean, when I think back and when I was so crippled by my addiction and then by my codependency, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol were running my life and then my opinion of others and relationships were running my life. So I was not free. And, um, you know, the minute you put that stuff down, anything's possible and i always say that like you know i saw a woman that was a heroin addict and and couldn't put down the pot she put down the heroin but and her life got a little better and she wasn't getting arrested and her, but i'm telling you until she put that pot down you know her life finally took off when she put down everything so yeah. that's just me i think you really need to put the stuff down first yeah yeah that's been my experience yeah I mean, we all have reasons to. Pay. I mean, come on. Oh, no doubt about it. Look, I, I'm I mean, one of those. Yes, I'm one of those people. Do that, anything. Yeah, and I, I'm very grateful actually that I had the substances when I had them, and that yes. I survived it because I don't know if I would have survived it otherwise. Oh. Because they were doing some things for me that I couldn't do for myself at that time. Of course. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, take away all the pain. They yeah. numb us. All of that yeah. stuff. It's how we. It's how we cope. Absolutely. Without yeah. question. Yeah. yeah. But I had no tools to cope otherwise. Nope. Nope. So I'm grateful that I had them and that I survived it and yes. that I uh, came out the other side into recovery where I was able to then gain the tools to be able to live life yes. one day at a time. And freedom is such a tremendous way to describe recovery. It's the most consistently invoked adjective Yep. when we ask this question, and that's for good reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, peace. I mean, you know, I would never have said that before, but really, it's just, it's just having a peace of mind. I mean, and being able to just be with yourself and not need to do any, you know, not using anything outside of ourselves to make us okay. I mean, that's what addiction is. And I mean, you've known people, I'm sure, with tons of recovery and they're still suicidal or they're, you know, because they're not really diving in and trying to get at what, you know, what it's about. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to do that too. You Without you know. question. Yep. I had to address 
the fundamental drivers inside of me that were causing that restlessness, that irritability, and that discontentedness that drove me to seek external things in order for me to be okay. That came in the form of substances, that came in the form of people, relationships, sex, whatever. Anything, right? Food. So, addressing those core fundamental drivers was critical for me. And for me, that was done inside of the 12 steps, working them in order with a sponsor. Yep. Higher power, then inventory, and then being able to continue on a spiritual path. And in parallel, I had to embark on a therapeutic journey. Sure, absolutely. To move through trauma and PTSD. My mom died when I was 11. So doing those things in parallel unlocked it for me. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I also know, and this is important for me. Yep. I can get back to a place where I need them external things again. Sure. Because that's still something that I'm capable of. I'm still capable of picking up resentments. I'm still capable of picking up character defects and getting to a place where I get that restless, irritable, discontented feeling that makes me want to escape it. Right. 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 And so that's why this daily thing for me, right? I got to do this on a daily basis. It's not a one and done. You know, the big stuff, yes, but then there's maintenance. Yes. Well, it's like that dis-ease, you know what I mean? And someone said recently, you know, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. (laughs) And I really love that because it's like, I can't coast. I mean, not that I can't, you know, but I'm always trying to kind of, you know, connect to the higher power, do my daily inventory because I don't want to feel dis-ease. I don't want to feel irritable, restless, and discontent. And when I'm off, and I'll, I can tell you about a situation when we get talking in the in the main body of the podcast about how I kind of figure out what's happening for me and how sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. But I know substances aren't going to solve it. That's for sure. Welcome, Way Out faithful and first-timers, to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes 
iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm ecstatic to bring you my interview with psychologist, author of the new book, Co-Crazy, One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and roadmap to freedom, and person in long-term recovery, Dr. Sarah Michaud. Dr. Sarah shares her journey to and through recovery from addiction and codependency to this point with us in a way that really helps us understand both in an extremely beneficial way. On its face, addiction and codependence appear to be polar opposites of one another. Addiction involves the compulsive use of a substance or behavior to change one's feelings or default state of mind and body. Codependency, on the other hand, is on its surface about trying to change the addict or alcoholic. Underneath this behavior, however, is a compulsion that is precisely the same but looks very different on the surface. Codependent behavior is ultimately about trying to change others in order to change one's own feelings. It often manifests like this. I feel a compulsion to fix or save a loved one from pain or discomfort. This seems like a straightforward act of love and helpfulness. However, the driving force behind this act is not about them. In reality, it's about me. My inability to sit with the discomfort and dis-ease of watching a loved one experience pain or adversity. Ultimately, the desire to control people, places, and things is about trying to change others so I can change my feelings. The good news is, just as the root of codependency and addiction are strikingly similar, so are the principles and practices we adopt to recover from each affliction. Dr. Sarah's message about the truth of addiction and codependency, how she found the way out, and how you can too, is instructive, enlightening, and downright inspirational. So listen up. Dr. Sarah Michaud, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on The Way Out Podcast. You are a psychologist and you are the author of Co-Crazy, One Psychologist's Recovery 
from codependency and addiction. You are also a person in long-term recovery from addiction and codependency, and you're here with us to share your journey to and through recovery to this point and talk all about what recovery's enabled you to do. Before we get into any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and we'll get started. Okay, sure. Hey, Charles. Um, Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Sarah, and I am definitely an addict and alcoholic. I've been sober for a long time, almost four decades And uh, it's been quite the journey. I got sober when I was 24 and um, I loved cocaine and alcohol, but I also did a lot, did a lot of other things when I ran (laughs) out of that stuff. So, so yeah. And I, you know, once I put it down, I, and got sober, my life took off. I, I say that all the time because, and I do believe that for people that are struggling I am telling you, the thing with addiction is we want it to be anything but Mm -hmm. the substances. (laughs) We want it to be the depression. We want it to be our parents. We want it to be our husbands. We want it to be, you know, our some physical problem we have or whatever. And I have people calling me all the time, especially parents. For some reason, parents want their kid to I swear they want them to be depressed rather than be a substance abuser. (laughs) And uh I don't know, because of the stigma or whatever, even though I don't feel like there's a stigma now. But um, yeah, so let's yeah. start at the beginning. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about family of origin. Where did you grow up? What was family life growing up like? Got it. Um, growing up, I uh, I had four brothers. I'm the only girl. In oh, wow. OK, so yeah. that's an that's an interesting dynamic, right? Yeah, I I often say I didn't know I was a girl till I was 12 because I I was a real tomboy. <laughs> so it was shocking to me when 7th grade came I, around, but um I bet I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So I and I was right in the middle. I had two older brothers and two younger brothers and it and I'm sure other people have this experience. It was like two different families because the sure. two older brothers were close. And then myself and my two younger brothers were close. Sure. So that was kind of the dynamic. Even though we were all two years apart, it was how we kind of were set up. Right. Um, Dad was the typical kind of, uh, he was a corporate attorney, big, you know, work all the time, very Mm. preoccupied with work. And mom was the at-home housewife alcoholic. (laughs) Okay. 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 So, um yeah, so she, it's interesting because she she's kind of this invisible character to me. Um, obviously, I've done a lot of work around that relationship, but, you know, just really unavailable, very mm-hmm. preoccupied in her own world. Um, it's amazing. Once I had a child of my own, I think, how did she raise five children? I mean, I don't know how people do it um, and drink. And, you know, my father was an angry kind of controlling person. And I think she just coped with her life by drinking. But she still, I mean, you know, of course, now I look at all the stuff she did do, which was amazing, too. And, yeah. she, you know, she died only a few years older than I am now. So I was in my 30s when she died and right. straight up booze, steaks and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> That was it. Steaks for breakfast, Marlboros, and vodka. 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was clearly lifestyle back then, but yeah. No doubt about it. Now, this emotionally unavailable mom who has four other kids and you to take care of and a husband that's also largely unavailable. Yes. Right. Both both emotionally and physically. Yes. And was the anger unpredictable? Was it volatile? Was it very unpredictable? I mean, you know, I think, I mean, I think he was, he was a World War II vet. So I think he had untreated PTSD is sure. my diagnosis now. Sure. But plus he's an untreated Alan honor. I mean, he was just, he kept thinking that she would change. Yeah. And he would relentlessly be surprised when she was drunk at the dinner table. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it would be like these blow ups at the dinner table when he just didn't understand addiction, yeah. you know, looking back now. And right. so he was just got angrier and angrier and angrier. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I joke with people about, you know, the big book, you know, I remember my old sponsor said, you know, the big book is just about how self-reliance failed early on, you know, hundred percent. And so I really feel like when I was like three, I thought these people don't know what they're doing. I'm going to figure this out. So, I mean, we become so self-reliant, Charles. It's like yeah. our biggest issue, right? It's so true. Yes. It is so I'm true. I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah. So I can super relate to that. Uh, after my mom died, she did everything for us, right? Right. Everything. And I made a very conscious decision. I'm going to do this by myself, okay? Yes. I don't need other people in my life. They're just going to go away anyway. So I am doing this by myself and I don't need God either because, uh, you know, uh, I very much connected this faithful say they were just being nice at the wake. Right. But a person came up to me and said, I guess God saw fit to take your mom home early. And as an 11 year old, I'm thinking God's an asshole. Right. Of course. I'm pissed. Right. Right. I don't need this God in my life and I don't need other people in my life. So that fierce yep. independence, I can super. Yes. Yes. And that's which, so which common. created a dependence. <laughs> it's so common, though, with folks we know. Right. Like yes. for people to ask for help, they've got to be like lit on fire. or something. I know. You know and it's mean? still a thing for me, Dr. Sears. Absolutely. Me, too. Yeah. Me, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's still a thing. <laughs> yep, it's hard. It's hard. It is. And yeah. no, it is no doubt about it. Because it's, it's a vulnerable thing, right? It's, Absolutely. It's it. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. It's funny because I have a friend of mine, and whenever we say something really nice to each other or we ask for help, we put the vomit emoji. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> because that's what it feels like. It's like, that's oh God, thing. I hate this. You know. It's the worst. Yeah. Yes. So anyways, I love that. That's great. Okay, so tell me about so you discover at about 12 or 13 that you're not just one of the boys. uh, You're actually a girl. And how soon into this now teenage exploration phase do substances enter the mix? Well, I will say first, and this is, I think, common with people, too. My first addiction was sugar. Yes. Because um, before I even picked up a drink, 
that was definitely my self-soothing. You know, I remember, I don't know if you have Brigham's where you are, Brigham's ice cream. There was a Brigham's in our town. And every afternoon after school, that's where we went. We went and got ice cream in the afternoon. And it just became for me, you know, young, young. Um, that's how I'm going to feel okay. And yeah. the problem with that is that's okay until you're a teenager and you start putting on weight. And so, you know, I became overweight and, and I have so much compassion for girls and guys as teenagers when you're overweight. Because oh, my God. Because torturous. Oh, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Dr. Sarah, so this is why recovery is so amazing. This is why all of this is so amazing and I love what I do. We're the birthplace of Dairy Queen, right? Oh. So, you know, we all go to Dairy Queen. Are you kidding? Dairy Queen, absolutely. That's it. So, after my mom died, same thing. I gained a bunch of weight because food became the way to soothe and absolutely. deal with the overwhelming emotions that I had no idea what to do with. And so I became the fat kid and I was relentlessly bullied in middle school. Like there's anything worse than losing your mom, but then you then become the fat kid and become bullied on top of it. So I, like you, have so much compassion and empathy for teenagers that that are overweight. It's it's yes. Such a difficult experience. Absolutely, because I think of that age, too, as when, like, you like boys or you like girls, so you're starting to create your identity. And also, not just the opposite sex, but friendships. So a huge thing that happened to me, and I ended up, I think, drinking in ninth grade, and I swear this was a big part of it, is I had a best friend in elementary school. And I don't know if you guys had this experience, we had a bunch of elementary schools and then we go to the junior high school, of course, which is all the elementary schools. And my best friend got into the cool group. Oh, mm-hmm. And so here I go to seventh grade in our town. It was seven, eight, nine is uh, middle school. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like this girl that I've known for six years and was my best buddy is like not saying hi to me in the hall. And yeah. I, it sounds so dumb now. But oh but my it's like God. it's everything. I know. Everything. So the boys, you know, the crushes on boys. My best friend is no longer, you know, with me. I'm in this new building with all these new people, and you want to be liked and all that and stuff. And accepted, and you feel and abandoned instead, right? Yes. A hundred percent. No question. I can very much relate to it. We're so hyper aware and hypersensitive. Oh. During that time. During that time. Yes. Absolutely. How others view us. View you. Yes. And and you feel so invisible. Yes. And to being accepted or not. Yes. It's it's everything. Yes. It's so wild because I have a 22-year-old now. And when he was in like eighth and ninth grade, I swear it, it was more torture for me than it was for him. Because I was literally reliving my own adolescence. Yeah. And I'll never forget, he came home one day and, you know, it's like the girls and and how am I going to talk to a girl? And he said, Mom, the problem is all the boys like the same five girls. I know. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, so there's an entire school of women, of girls, 
And yet every guy wants the, the five that are the no question. No question. Yeah. And so I just, it's so pained me because other girls liked him, but to like, it's all about what, what everyone's going to think of you and all this. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. I'm on a <laughs> no tangent. Question. But yeah, no, but, but time. yes, but it's so relatable. It's yes. so relatable, Sarah. It's so relatable. Uh, and also, oh. you know, I will say, Charles, with my clients over the years, so often some gorgeous person comes in and they seem like they got their whole life together and they're an alcoholic. And so often they talk about seventh and eighth grade, like those two years. And in fact, when I was in graduate school, the most hospitalizations for kids were those ages, because yeah. I think that middle school time and I don't even know how it is now. It's probably a hundred times worse, but is so tough. So it yeah. is, it is, it can be when addiction starts. So it's really important. Yeah, it was for me. A hundred percent. You know, the first time I drank. Yes. Was uh, as a freshman in high school. Yes. After two torturous years of middle school. Yes. And it solved everything for me. Yes. Solved everything. All of the anxiety went away. Yes. All of the depression went away. Feeling different. Yes. And it unlocked things in me. I wasn't able to unlock prior to that moment. I was funny and I could be the life of the party and I didn't care what you thought. And I could flirt with the girls and I could stick up to the guys. I loved it. It was an elixir. I mean, I... Everything you just said is exactly my experience. I remember going to this party and just getting wasted because, of course, I didn't know how to drink. Right. I know. I know. You know, it's like my colleagues always say the problem with adolescence is they don't know how to drink. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's so true. So you just guzzle this stuff. You don't even like the taste. But I remember I've all of my anxieties went away. I felt like I didn't care and I was funny and I remember making people laugh and I just thought this is the solution is to everything. Yes. Yes. This is it. Yes. I've found the yes. answer. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. This enables me to be the person I always wanted to be. And I could do it on demand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, like you, the first time got incredibly wasted. Yes. So wasted, in fact, that they put me in an outdoor dog kennel because I was so out of control. And they went and checked on me a few hours later and I had stopped breathing and my lips were blue. I was dying of alcohol. Wow. Yes. Which happens all the time with kids that age. All the time. Because they just guzzle it and then they pass out and they don't even know. You're absolutely right. Yes. You are absolutely correct. Very thank, dangerous. Thank God my best friend was able to revive me. Oh, my um, God. And uh, then they proceeded to feed me a, an entire bottle of syrup of Ipecac. Oh, God. Because they didn't want to take me to the hospital. And I proceeded to vomit for hours and hours. Oh, my and it was God. Awful. And you know what, though? All you I wanted to do life, was do it probably. again. And, and I became I became I became a party hero yes right like you might be 
the captain of the football team, but I fucking died. Okay, and came back to life again. Okay, right. okay, I am a party legend. Oh my god, what a rep! Yeah, what a rep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's big time. All that's right, so how does it progress for you? You find this answer. Oh, right. How does how? So I find this answer, and basically, I drink all you know through high school, um, and. It's it's a debacle. I mean, I think to myself, I'm not doing well. I just start partying. My parents get worried about me. And so they decide I should go to private school because I'm like flunking out of high school, the local high school where all my friends were. So they send me to this private school, which, of course, oh, my God, I literally <laughs> think about this school sometimes and I just get that awful feeling of alienation mm-hmm. because I'm going in as a junior okay. and I don't know anybody. anybody. They've all been together. Right. 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 And so they've you know, got their cliques established. They, and- everything's established. Plus, I'm overweight now and everybody seems perfect to me. And, and if it's it, a private school, they've got some money a lot of times. And so it's a different social class situation. Yeah, too, right? abs- absolutely. It's just everybody seemed. I mean, the feeling of feeling different was just exacerbated. Yeah. It's not that I didn't feel that way before, but at right. least I had established my pals. Right now I'm and the trouble is, too. So now I'm going to this prep school. And so I'm not really connecting with people there, but my friends at the high school now are kind of moving on. So they're yeah. creating new relationships. So I really felt totally lost. And oh, the, wow. drinking, the drinking definitely escalated. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, I got into a college, which is a miracle, but I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I deferred basically and took a year off. And my father said, oh, to sow your wild oats. But it was a shit show because. So so you took yeah. a gap year before it was cool. Yeah. Before, right. Well, I mean, I was, you know, he thought it was, oh, I just wanted some time off to. But really, I couldn't function. And yeah. that's when the cocaine got really escalated because what I did is I moved to Miami. So, and I think to myself, I was 17. I mean, it boggles my mind when I think about it. So I meet this girlfriend and we moved to Miami because we're from Boston and we're like, we'll go down there and get waitressing jobs and work at a resort, which is what happened. But there were Coke dealers on every corner. Sure. Especially in Miami in the 80s. Miami in the 80s. For real. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, tons of cocaine, yeah. lots of trouble. I mean, I had this experience and I look back. I don't know if I say this in the book, but I mean, we're hanging out with these two guys that were, I guess, really serious trouble. And we didn't know it because we'd meet people at bars and stuff. And one night I, um, I, I slept out on the screen porch and I was woke. God, I get, you know, having feelings talking about this. And I get woken up by a man standing in the hallway with a gun pointed at me. And he says, are you, you know, my name at the time? And I said, yes. And he says, are you this guy's Jesse so-and-so's girlfriend? And I said, well, yeah. 
And he said, he shot my partner last night. And again, I am so out of it that I don't even really know this guy, Jesse. I mean, like we had done Coke together, but it's not like we were dating. Right. I mean, I'm this kid from this, you know, family in New England and I'm down there having fun. And suddenly I'm in this situation where, you know, this is serious stuff. And this cop like woke me up, said, get dressed. And that day, which was so embarrassing, really, you know, and sad and tragic, so I'm, he took me around all day in this vehicle to try to find this guy. And he kept asking me questions about him, which I didn't know one answer to. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, cause he was just a guy I'm, you know, right. And here this looking back, it's this man whose partner is shot by this guy who was later arrested and put in prison. But it's just like, those are the types of people I was around without even knowing it. Is the and the point. kind of situations you were finding yourself in yes exactly my point i mean just crazy crazy situations because of the drugs and um you know everything gets magnified when the drugs are involved it just did you know the behaviors get worse because you need money for drugs and so how does that escalate for you then as you continue to use and abuse cocaine and drink. How does that escalate? So what happened is we're down there for only, you know, the winter, basically. Now I'm supposed to start school. Uh, I'm supposed to come home and start school. So um, I take a train home and um, I literally don't even remember those few months of the summer, but I hung around with a Coke dealer. I actually started selling Coke because, of course, I'm using it all the time. So now I have to start selling it. You have to fund it. Yeah, I got to fund the Coke, but um, I'm not really doing a great job. (laughs) So what? This is where we get into the That's right. The most successful dealers I ever knew were ones that didn't use the product. Right. Right. So I go out to this college in Chicago and um, just again, just drinking, not going to school. I come home. I think I talk about this in the book. I come home for Thanksgiving break and the Coke dealer fronts me an ounce of Coke because he's, I owe so much money. And the problem is, is like I take the, and this is back in the eighties. So you could, I guess, take it on an airplane, but I take it (laughs) You know, to Chicago thinking I'm going to sell it to all my college pals and we just blow it. We just do it. No. You know what I mean? Oh, no. And so now I not only owe the whatever, a couple of grand to the Coke dealer I owed, but now I owe another 2,800 bucks. So my two roommates and I hatch a plan that we're going to pull this check scam and we stole our roommates' checks. And then we were in a vehicle and we were going to go up to the drive, the drive-through with the checks. And sure. then my friend was going to go in the bank and cash the checks. So she went in the bank and two of us drove through the drive-through. And when we're at the drive-through, I guess we were acting really strange. <laughs> 
And <laughs> the bank teller didn't cash our checks. But the problem was when we pulled around to the front of the bank, our friend had come out with all with all this money because she could ch- cash the checks. So right away, like we took off in the car. I mean, I don't know what we ended up doing, getting shit faced. And that night, um, actually that same day, three other friends of ours were arrested. And then they called us because they knew who, who the people that did it were. And we ended up having to go in the next day. And I remember my father had this photograph of me with the black name, with the black number plate. Yeah holding it in front of my chest because it's a felony. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. so that's part of the escalation. It's right. like, so now right. I'm getting felonies, you know, right. and now I'm getting arrested for felonies. And, um, you know, thank God, really looking back that it was kind of made out to be a college prank and like the drugs literally never came into the, the picture. But yeah, so I got kicked out of college to say the least. Um, and yeah. So that was the progression, just more coke, more drugs, worse, you know, worse people I'm hanging out with. I mean, I often say the last guy I was with before I got sober, like literally had no teeth. He was a Mexican. He stole cars and would drive them down to Mexico and sell them. And he was a total insane human being. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just like I had no self-esteem. I didn't know who I was. I was lost. And uh, I mean, you know, I just had no I say to myself, I had no soul, but I just had no all I was doing was getting high. I mean, you know, I often say this, that when I got sober, I felt like I was dropped out of the clouds onto the planet because and I was like, where have I been? And I didn't have a manual. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because it was just those years of just being, you know, running. And how long was this? How many years of this? So it was from 15 to 24. So it was only nine years or whatever. But that's a long time, really, to do it at that level. Yeah. I mean, once the cocaine got on board, it's amazing to think that I still could get into more trouble because I ended up getting arrested again, trying to sell coke again. So I got, I kept getting into more trouble and I'll never forget this. I remember going before a judge and the judge said, so you have a year. I can't remember the terms, but basically if I got arrested again in the next year, I would go immediately to prison a year suspended or whatever. Sure. And I kept doing drugs. I mean, I think, if I had gotten caught, that would have been it. I would have been at Framingham State, you know, the local prison here. So it's not like anything can stop you. I mean, it's, you know, jails, institutions are death, right? I mean, no doubt about it. And I think about the saying that I've heard in the rooms that I couldn't lower my standards quick enough to match my behavior. Yes. <laughs> You know? well, you're, not even, you're not consciously thinking about it. You're just trying at the end. You're just trying to get through the day. Right. You know? And survival and and survive yeah. and get your drugs and get yeah. your booze. And, yeah. and yeah. you know, that's yeah. it. And Base get money. survival. Yeah. 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 Base survival is what that is at that point. OK, right. so are there opportunities or are there moments during this time where sobriety or recovery becomes either forced upon you or something that you seek? 
Um, I remember getting into therapy. My parents got me into therapy probably because there was another arrest. And I remember the therapist saying to me to go to an AA meeting. And this is probably a year before I actually got sober. And I remember going and when they went around the room, like I immediately said I was an alcoholic. It was like, it was not even a question. So it wasn't like I didn't know, Mm -hmm. but I just couldn't imagine like being in my body. I, I couldn't imagine tolerating whatever pain, whatever was underneath. Whatever was going on, being so, yeah. right, like. Yes, yeah. so I really didn't, I didn't take any of the opportunities until the end where I really crashed and burned. I just did too many drugs. I'd been up for three days and I thought I was losing my mind and I ended up in the hospital. You okay, so, so yeah. you end up having a, a drug-induced psychosis. Right, basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it lands you in the hospital. Yeah. What happens? Next? And, you know, it's funny because I think I felt relief. I think I knew. I mean, I, here it's a year before I'd already said I was an alcoholic. And you want to hear the funniest thing is my mom took me to, to detox. And I remember when we were, when the person, the intake person was interviewing me, and they said, you know, are you a drug addict? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah. And they said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yes. And I remember my mother said, no, you're not. <laughs> and I remember thinking it's because she didn't, she, I think, would blame herself if I had an alcohol problem. Yeah. But it was okay that I had a cocaine problem. And I just turned to her and I said, mom, I drink all day long. I mean, of course I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> It's just so interesting. You know, parents can only tolerate kind of what is not going to activate them. Yeah. So I think from the beginning, I really I just loved recovery. I mean, I. I was there for a month and I just like I said, I felt relief and it's so like it's over, like it's finally over. Yes, like it's finally over. And I remember I just slept a lot. Because God knows, you know, I'd been on so many runs and um, but I remember these groups coming in from AA and stuff. And I'd ask the stupidest questions. Like I remember raising my hand and like literally and I'm not kidding, Charles, I was serious. I said, what are you supposed to do on July 4th? Like that was like (laughs) that was like this huge deal for me. Like I couldn't imagine. Like what do people do? Do. (laughs) Yeah. And so it took, you know, it took a while and I just went to tons of meetings and needed to create new relationships. I mean, I just, I was still kind of running in recovery for a long time too. I mean, it was great because I was getting clean and I was getting connections and I was having successes, but it took me a while to really land in my body. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I think a lot of us can identify with that feeling of relief yes. once we surrender. Yes, I certainly can. I ran from my addiction and alcoholism, tried to manage it, hide it for oh. many, many years. And right. once I finally surrendered, it was a tremendous relief. Yeah. And the, the whole thing about trying to control things, you know, like clients will come in and they'll think they need to control it and stuff. 
And I'll always say, well, what does that look like? And then I'll say, well, how many drinks? Blah, blah, blah. They'll say, oh, well, I'll drink Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'll have three drinks. And of course, they never can do it, right? <laughs> but the effort, like, it takes so much freaking effort. No doubt. To try I, for real. to manage it and control it that they don't understand that, like, giving it up is so much easier. Yes, yes. yes. It is the amount of energy yes. that I spent. Yes. Dr. Sarah, over the 20 years yes. that I sat in active addiction and alcoholism to try to manage it and control it in one way, shape or form was absolutely astounding. Yes. And it bottom line for me was every time I was able to control it, I didn't enjoy it. Right. And every time it got out of control is what I enjoyed it the most. Well, the end when it something ridiculous might happen or a consequence of DWI, a lost relationship, whatever right. that is, right? right. Like, right. but that was the dichotomy for me. That was the yin and the yang for sure. Yes. Every time I controlled it, I didn't enjoy it. And in order yes. for me to enjoy it, it got out of control. Well, it's so crazy, too, because the thing that I think people forget, too, is like it's an obsessive compulsive illness. So yeah. even when the compulsion, like say you are only drinking on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the rest of the time you're obsessing That's about it. A hundred percent. You're not free. No, you're not. You know and I mean, it, in fact, that gets amped up. So the mental illness component actually gets exacerbated. Worse. Yes. Worse. Worse. And I always compare it to. I like apples. I do. I like them. I like grapes. Yeah. And I never have to make deals with myself. Right. About how many grapes I'm going to eat right. or how often I'm going to eat them. Right. And if I only eat grapes this many times during the day or week, then I don't have a grape problem. You want to know yes. why? Because I'm not addicted to grapes. That's why. Right. That is why. Right. Absolutely. Well, hard yes. stop. Anytime I know that I start making that sort of like, well, if I only have it this often, then they're not a problem. It's already a problem. Okay. If I'm doing that, that's a problem. It's okay. so true. And the, the <laughs> trouble is, and why it's so dangerous is because the quintessential component is denial. Yes. So it's like we can, you know, and I say this, I think in the book, like I've had clients who come in and say, I got 90 days, right? And in their mind, they got 90 days. And then, you know, halfway through the session, they mentioned going to someone's wedding and having a couple of beers. And I'm like, and I say to them, I'm like, but I thought you said you just got 90 days. And he's like, oh, beer and wine aren't alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> But again, it's like, or I've had someone say, you know, someone recently say, you know, I have, you know, six weeks. And then when I was talking to them, they they told me, except for the five times I drank. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And in his mind, he believes he's 100%. sober. That's the freaking dangerous part. hundred <laughs> percent. The, the rationalization of the yes. justification right is yes. it, it can go to astounding levels no doubt absolutely 
Absolutely. about it. Okay, so you are still running recovery for some time, but tell me about how your recovery progresses. And I'm super interested to hear about how codependency enters in and how right. you address that and how you grapple with that, because I think that's pretty common for folks that end up getting sober and addressing and confronting their addiction and find themselves headlong into codependency. How did that manifest for you? Absolutely. I mean, I think in the early years of my recovery, I just was so focused on achievement and, you know, I felt like I was, had this new life and I, I was experiencing adolescence at 28. Yes. I know, you know, I know all this stuff. So I was, I was so caught up in like this new life that I wasn't really aware of what wasn't working. And mm-hmm. really as I got older and into graduate school and, um, had series of relationships and, you know, I got to be in my thirties and mid thirties. And I was like, wow, I don't seem to be able to do this relationship thing. Well, and, um, you know, had a pattern of just Uh, unsuccessful relationships and also not just unsuccessful relationships, but really noticing. And I had to get in therapy when you're in a PhD program, you have to get in therapy and, and uh, look at some stuff. And I remember just talking about like the intense fears I had around Mm. like not being good enough, not being wanted, not being loved, you know, and and didn't realize that a lot of those unconscious fears, like it says in the big book, we were driven by a hundred forms of fear. were driving my relationship patterns. And I didn't really hit a bottom until I got married when I was 39 and I had the quickest marriage in history. I got divorced when I was 41, but um, <laughs> I did get a child out of it. But um, yeah, I got married. And I think when I got married and had a child because of a series of circumstances, which were moving back to Boston, being in a marriage, you know, for the first time, having a child, there was just, it was like the perfect storm to crash and burn. And I had a practice of patients. I was working at a psych hospital and um, my husband at the time was suffering with depressions and he was in the program. He was from Vancouver and had moved here. And I was so preoccupied with his stuff and I was getting angrier and angrier that he wasn't changing. Yeah. And I started going to Al-Anon and this was in, you know, probably the late nineties. And, you know, in Al-Anon, they talk about this is, this is where, you know, an AA you get sober and an Al-Anon you get sane. Supposedly. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true, but it's all about the relationships and this illness affects relationships. Yes. You know, whether you grow up in it, whether you become it, whether you marry it, you know, it's, it's really, yeah, it affects relationships. So I really crashed and burned at that point in like 2001. And that's when I went to Al-Anon and started doing more work around, you know, ACOA and codependency Mm -hmm. work. And um, yeah, and really started diving deep into those dynamics. I went through the steps again in a really thorough way 
and really got in touch with a lot of those motivating fears yeah. and how they manifested. Yeah. And I, you know, so that was really important. And then my husband, I got divorced and I got married again. And, and that guy relapsed. And that was when, again, the shit show began shit show number two. <laughs> yeah. Because, and I mean, I, you know, lots of people go through this and you don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know uh, like where I would hear about it, maybe at an Al-Anon meeting, but here I am, I'm supposed to be an expert in substance abuse. I'm working, you know, as a psychologist, my husband who I'd married was 15 years sober at the time. He relapses and I have a small child at home. So, I mean, it was insane. And how his relapse manifested was he kept getting surgeries, which is like a whole other episode probably, but he had a knee issue and, you know, got that fixed. And then he had a gallbladder issue and got that fixed. And the tricky thing is he literally had these medical issues. Right. So it wasn't like, it's so crazy making because I'm like, is he making, he wasn't making it up, right? But he was abusing the pills. Yep. And yep. Um, you hear yep. that story all the time. A hundred percent without yeah. question. I'm terrified to get my knee operated on again for that specific yes. reason. Right. And pills were never a problem for me, That's but a lot right. of things were never a problem until they were. Okay. That's right. That's so right. that, that terrifies me. It's I, scary. It, I mean, yeah, it is. It's the seek. I think the biggest thing is the secretiveness and the yeah. disconnection. And if you're not telling the truth, that's it. The dishonesty the and dishonesty the, is the killer. it is such a slippery slope. It is. It is such a slippery slope to say, well, do I need it or not? And I can convince myself I need it. Yes. I need it. Yes. That. Yeah is a slippery dang slope if there yeah. ever was one and yes. sarah i could relate i'm thrice married thrice divorced in my active addiction i might have you beat on my second marriage i think i was married and divorced inside of a year okay <laughs> so i might have you be but i feel so much better right now yeah. <laughs> so i have shame every time i say my second marriage but it's all right i gotta get over it, it this is a part of it. Okay. This is a part of it. Yes. Part of it. And my progress through the steps and my inventory was a game changer. Yep. In terms of identifying how I showed up in relationships and how I failed to show up in relationships and the fears yes. that were at the center of how I either showed up or failed to show up. In yes. those relationships. And I had to reckon with the fact that I was the common denominator. Yes. Prior to that moment, they were crazy. They were, right? Yes. Right? They were the problem. I know. And I had to reckon with the fact that I was the common denominator and my picker was broken. Oh, amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I had some work to do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's so funny. I'm sure you've heard this saying, but I heard someone say last week, if you take the me out of blame, you just have blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, that is so brilliant because it's it. like, I really believe that until someone 
takes responsibility yeah. for their program That's and it. it like stop blaming others yeah. you really can't get better and i've seen people you know clients and sponsees that still wanna you know it's still good and it's not that horrible stuff doesn't happen or it's not that people don't do stuff to you yeah, 100%. But, but focusing on them is not going to get me better that's i it. can only change myself that's it that's it that's, that's it. it that's yeah. it and that continues to be so instrumental yes. in my life and i know that i have codependent tendencies and i'm so grateful that I'm able to draw upon the many folks that we've had on this podcast that are in recovery from yes. codependency and that I can lean on my 12-step program to understand fundamentally, as you said, the only thing I can change is me. And that ain't that easy all the time. Yes. yes. That's a full-time job in and of itself. Yes. And the best thing I can do is be the best example of recovery I could be on a daily basis. And if uh, another person is disturbing me emotionally, that's about me. Right. Absolutely. But the whole anger thing is so true because I say, you know, 99% of the time we get angry, it's not about, well, it's not about the present situation and it's usually about the past. Yeah. And um, it's so true because even if someone's doing something to us, we're still responsible for what our behaviors, for what we say, for what we do, for who we call, for who we text. I mean, it's all on us. And, um, you know, thankfully, you know, with my sponsor in the late 90s, like I have these great tools now. And I realized when you were talking about relationships and fear, like when I did that fourth step in like 99, I realized literally that every relationship I got in was from the fear of not being wanted. That was from my mother, yeah. you know, because I never thought my mother liked me and all this stuff. And it's so crazy when you think about it because here's something that happened when i was three or whatever yeah. and it's directing all my future relationships yeah <laughs> and we have an exercise i don't know if you guys do it this way but so you write the fear down and then the first question is when did you first have the fear what happened and so say it's the fear of abandonment and right. then you write out a couple of sentences of when it first happened. And then the question is, what have you done to cope with this fear? So you look at all your self-seeking behaviors, you know, I avoided or I was seductive or I controlled or I manipulated or whatever. And then you try to figure out the new behaviors, which is really helpful. That's <laughs> that is extremely helpful. No. Um, and I think that process does definitely add a layer to it because it ties it back to yes. causes and conditions. And yes. when I first got sober, I remember being in that treatment counselor's office and just like breaking down and crying like a baby and admitting yes. like all of it for the first time to one human being. Uh, for the first time in my life to one, Absolutely. Speaking, right? And, and, and 
I wasn't planning on it. I was just trying not to get divorced for a third time, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's that's how it happened for me. And I'm so grateful for it. But I, she's like, what do you want to get out of this thing, this treatment thing? You know, and I said, I want to know why I am the way I am. Yes. And she laughed and she's like, okay, so we figured out. Do you think you'll ever be able to drink normally again? I was like, no, I don't think that. I don't think so. She's like, do you ever think you're going to be able to use safely again? I was like, no, I don't think that's no. So so we focus on how we get better and not why we are the way we are. And that was that first light bulb moment. And it gave me a direction. And I really started in earnest seeking and working on my recovery. But. I did find out the whys. Yes. Those yes. did come. Yes. Yes. But I had to do some work first. There was some. Absolute, absolutely. And I mean, so often I think it's just pain is the great motivator. I mean, whether you're using or you're sober and at any different stage in your sobriety. I mean, when we get in enough pain, we usually do something about it. You know? Absolutely. And, um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So. Tell me about the genesis of Co-Crazy, One Psychologist Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and a roadmap to freedom. And what motivated you to write this book? Um, All right. This may not make people happy, but this is the this is really what started it is I was going to Al-Anon meetings and. There are some great Al-Anon meetings and sometimes the codependent person or the spouse or the parent comes across as the victim. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying always, but sometimes when you hear someone share, it's like, you know, oh, my husband was this way and, and, you know, poor me kind of thing. Yeah. And that just always bothered me. And I, and I remembered what this, you know, doctor that was my mentor at the hospital I worked at said one time in kind of a moment of anger to this famous, there's a famous author and I was being trained and he was at the hospital with his wife and I was in the session. And I remember Every time the doctor asked the couple a question, the woman would answer for him. And the guy was just sitting there like, you know, I'm going to go home and drink again because she's already like controlling everything. Right. And the, the doctor, you know, finally got so irritated. He said, you know, you're killing him. And which he wouldn't. He's not supposed to say. Right. But but. But she was rationalizing so much of her husband's behavior and trying to control him that she wasn't setting any limits. And, you know, what's unbelievable, Charles, is later on, a few years later, I was in a bookstore and he had a book out and it said posthumously on the back. So he did die, I'm assuming, from alcoholism. But it's like, so that piece of you know, the kind of victim partner always bugged me. And I knew that from doing the step work in, uh, in the program that we're all responsible. Now I'm not killing my partner if I don't divorce him, but I am tolerating 
their behavior and I'm also not setting a limit, which is going to be the thing that can help them. So I really wanted to write this book because, and I'm kind of tough in the intro, I think sometimes, because I say, welcome to your life and mine, because I think people have a hard time looking at that piece. I mean, the thing about codependency is, and this is also true with people who get sober and then struggle with the codependency is when you're an addict, you kind of lose your sense of self, right? Yep. We're all, you know, we're preoccupied with the drugs and alcohol and we get, we get lost around, you know, I remember when I got sober, like what colors do I like? What food do I like? What Absolutely. music do I like? We, we, we lose our, our identity. identity. That's it. Yes. And the thing about codependency is it's the same exact way, except you're focused not on a drug, but the person or people are your drug. So I'm more preoccupied with what they think and feel rather than what I need. And that's really the nature of codependent behavior is I'm run by fear and I'm focused on them being okay. But what is it really? It's I want them to be okay so I can be okay. Right? You know, it's like parents. Parents are, you know, a group that I... I just talked to a group recently and, you know, it's so hard for parents in general to set boundaries, but people in recovery, parents to set boundaries is even harder because they have so much guilt. Right. But I mean, I'm living that right now. Okay. Dr. Sarah, I'm living that right now. My oldest child's a hot mess. I love them to pieces. Yes. They're a hot mess. Yes. I want to save them from themselves. I want to fix their car and I want to you know, just fix it. I want to just fucking fix it. And and I'm not, but it's not easy. And no, it's and, and, and that's 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 fucking real. That is so real and it's so hard. And what I see happen a lot, and you're not an outlier at all, is people get, you know, they have children, they get sober. Then they have all this guilt and remorse. And yes. so they like, you know, don't they want to be nice and they they don't really know how to parent what none of us do. Right. And then they create these kids that then won't respect them because they haven't set the boundaries. Right. right? And then you create this thing that now you're afraid of. And now you feel like, oh, my God, I really got to set some limits and it's harder yeah, it's it's very common and very painful because they're our child. It's like we have to tolerate and even think about, you know, just not saying no to a two year old. You have to tolerate the tantrum. And that's the that's the fundamental thing. OK, yes. and that's what I have to come back to every time is yes. my wanting to fix my oldest kid. Yes. Not about them. It's about me because I can't tolerate the discomfort. Yes. I can't tolerate it. And so I want that discomfort to go away because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that something really bad is going to happen to them. And ultimately, I'm afraid I'm responsible for it because of my addiction and alcoholism. Right. And so so all of that's all wrapped up into it. And and it makes me just want to fix it. Right. I, right. Yes. And, but Absolutely but I'm right. so grateful to have a program to know. I know that's that's a me thing. I need to I need to not. I need to forgive myself. Yes. I need 
to have some self-compassion for myself. I need to be available to them, but I do not need to fix it. No, and even even the next piece, which is absolutely you're saying everything right, is fixing it is not going to be good for them or you. So that's the thing. The whole preoccupation with doing it for them doesn't help them. And that's the thing to, that is like, uh, oh, what, what did I, they say? I heard somebody say it's taking away an opportunity for growth for that. Yes. Person, right? I'm stealing an opportunity of for growth away from you. Yes. But it's it's really hard. But it's I, I mean, the way I used to do it, it as a parent is like I just it's like thinking through a drug. Yes. Like I got to think through this. If I don't say no right now, what's going to happen? Like I could think it through, you know, and, you know, I've and, had and my- also know that there's going to be another thing that I'm going to want to fix. And, you know, right. Like, where does it end? Yeah, it's always. And this is the thing about codependency recovery. And it it may sound repetitive, but it's always bringing it back to us. Always bringing it back. What do I need? What do I want? What do I feel? What do I need? And what works for me around this exchange with my daughter? Not what works for her. What works for me? Okay, I need to set this. I need to say this. And then I need to let them have their feelings, you know, and let them have the consequences. I mean, it's so crazy when you think about like the human condition, right? Because we're born, we're these little children, we're fully self-expressed. We say what we want. We move our bodies. And then we get these messages. Oh, you shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't be this way. You can't say that. You can't say this. Then we put the drugs on top of that, right? So now we really can't. Then we get sober and people say to us, well, just be yourself. (laughs) You know, just, and you're like, I've just spent the last 20 years repressing that. And now I have to, oh, just be human. I have to feel things. I have to speak up. I have to set limits. So it's not easy. No. But it's all just being human. Absolutely. And the process of being able to set boundaries and the process of being able to understand what I am comfortable with and what I'm not. And this is all an exploration and this is all a process as we enter recovery, because many of us didn't have boundaries prior to entering recovery. Right. Many of us didn't understand what we liked, what we didn't like, what was okay, what felt okay, what didn't feel okay. All of those things. It's all a process. Um, that we undergo. And if I am leaning into the work and I'm leaning into the 12 steps and for me also layering on spiritual principles that I'm working on a daily basis, I'm really leaning into those. That's going to be a journey of leaning into who I feel like I'm ultimately called to be. Yes. You know, and in, in, in discovering my gifts, talents, skills, and abilities and being able to use those for good. Yes. And discovering what my boundaries are. Yes. And being better at enforcing those in yes. a way. And and I love the saying, say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. Yes. And all of those things are just, and I call them practices. Yes. Because we're not good at them. Right. We have to practice them. And the good news is, is there's many opportunities generally yes. on a daily basis to practice these things. Right. 
Absolutely. Oh my God. You said so many great things. I had so many thoughts about it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think it's just remembering like none of us learn this stuff. I mean, especially when you grow up, I mean, my parents, they didn't have any boundaries. I mean, they were walking around in their underwear all the time. I mean, like (laughs) just think about basic physical boundaries, let alone the fighting and the booze and the, you know, getting in our business. I mean, it's just like crazy town. Right. But yeah, the parenting thing. Oh, God, I was thinking of you said a great thing. Oh, I know. Kids to me, even though they'll squawk endlessly, want us to be the parent. Yes. Right. Yes. So it's like, you know, my mother who growing up was like smoking pot with us and didn't set a boundary and drank. Like I had no respect for her. And yeah. even though my father was kind of mean and angry, he set limits yeah. and I knew he cared because of those limits right. because kids want to feel safe. They do. And so, I mean, that's the other thing to remember. It's like, even though they act upset and have feelings, they really want you to do your job. Absolutely. They desperately want the boundaries and they desperately want to know know, what's okay, what's not. Right. Yes. Absolutely. No question. And to your point, as they get older and having adult kids and they don't stop being your kids, especially when they're young adults. And can it be every stage of my children's development? There's been challenges and blessings. Absolutely. And that doesn't stop when they launch into adulthood, especially early adulthood. But the knowledge and ability to be able to implement recovery tools so that I'm not taking away opportunities for them to grow and experience consequences and discover what they're capable of in the face of adversity. Right. There's going to be some some stuff, right? Like, and, and if I keep bailing you out, you'll never discover what you're capable of. I am telling you, Charles, I had coffee with this woman, I don't know, last year who was a mom of a friend of my son's in high school. And she literally was calling her kid in the morning at college to wake him up <laughs> at college. <laughs> and it's like, All I kept thinking about was not about her, but how it's the infantilizing of her son, you know, who's not even learning to wake his ass up when he's not even living in town anymore. I mean, it's like, talk about basics. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? You gotta let him fail. And I experienced that with my youngest child too, going into college. He had to fail in that first semester and fail a class and feel like, feel what that felt like Which even is though so hard for you. it is i told him until i was blue in the face like this is different you got to do this you got to do that you got to do this you got to do that but they needed to experience the failure right. and you know what it worked like they, it does they, work it worked they didn't want it that was not fun no it's not fun <laughs> at all but it does work worked yes you know? and that's such a blessing okay so dr sarah Tell me, what do you want folks to get out of this amazing book that you wrote, Co-Crazy, One Psychologist Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and roadmap to freedom? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest thing is it's like a big lie and delusion to think that you need to control other people, Mm. you know, and we have this belief like, oh, I need to behave a certain way. So this person will behave a certain way. So I'll be okay. And it requires so much effort. And the thing is, if you start getting into this recovery, and I am not kidding when I say this, your life gets 100% easier. I love that. And, you know, you will find freedom when you're not trying to control other people. And I'm also going to tell you, you're probably listening to this saying, I'm not controlling. Yeah. Trust me. (laughs) Trust me. There are many ways we control. Get the book. Read the book. Okay. It will be very enlightening. Uh, Treatment counselor in my extended outpatient gave me the CODA book, which is a similar program to Al-Anon. And she said, if you open this book and it makes you really angry, you might have some things to address. Right. You know, so, and it's not lost on me that at the root of addiction is a fundamental obsession to change my feelings. Yeah. And at the root of codependency is a fundamental obsession to change you so I can change my feelings. Same thing. It's the same damn it's thing. It's the same thing. Yes. You know, it's it reminds me of, you know, so often we heal from one thing and then we'll go to something else. That's it. The, the addiction whack-a-mole. The right. story of my life, right? Yeah. And I remember seeing this woman years ago who was um, came to me because she was going to get that bariatric surgery and she needed to. And it was so interesting because that same like month, an article came out in the New York Times about all these people who got the bariatric surgery who became alcoholics. Yes. So they have this surgery so they can't eat, but they don't resolve the underlying causes and conditions to the food addiction. So then they become alcoholics because they can no longer use food. And so it's like, you got to really get under there to the, to the underlying stuff. Causes yeah. and conditions. Yep, you got it. We have some closing questions, Dr. Sarah, if you're ready. Sure. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Um, I have uh, a stack of like three or four books that change over the years, have changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, that I do daily readings, I journal, I do, um, 10 steps. So in the morning I have like an hour, um, to do my kind of daily morning routine and, you know, I'm not perfect at it. And I definitely, you know, prayer meditation is huge for me and it's taken me a long time to get into a regular meditation practice, but now I love it. So don't beat yourself up about that. If you know, I mean, it took me trials and errors, you know. So yeah. Yeah, it's a process. It's a journey of discovery. Yeah. And I very much am the same way in the morning. I spend a considerable amount of time, just yes. about probably 45 minutes yes. in prayer, recovery literature, yes. meditation. Yes. And 
it's absolutely a practice. Yes. It's not a, a perfection. It's a practice. Yes. And yeah. I started something very early in recovery that continues to work for me, which is I started doing the things that the people that had what I wanted yes. did. Yes. If yes. they made their bed in the morning, like I started making my bed in the morning. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. They said they prayed to a higher power. I did that too. And, yes. you know, yes. the things that worked for me, I kept. And the things that didn't necessarily work for me, I didn't. You know, so. They had to exactly. take- and they change over time, yes. depending on what's going on in your life or what your needs are at any given time. Absolutely. And the most important thing for me in any of this is to really be mindful in it. I'm very capable of just going through motions yes. and not, right? And I'm thinking about, you know, does the dishwasher need to be emptied or, you yes. know, is uh, my kid okay or yes. whatever, right? Like being mindful in it. Yes, Abs- absolutely. And that's why I think I change up things. I mean, yeah. like, I think I read the language of letting go, like for 15 years in the morning and different Al-Anon books. And I've read Buddhism on and off for years too. And Pema Chodron, I love and then I reach a point where I'm like, this is not even going in anymore. I got to change it's it. It's bouncing. Yeah. So I got some new. Yeah. Because yeah, you need you need new stuff to stimulate you. Absolutely. So, yeah. No question. Yeah. Dr. Sarah, what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? Well, I mean, you know, obviously the big book, but I will say about the big book that I needed someone who really knew how to do the steps to take, to really make it come alive for me. Because if I read it and didn't have, I mean, I thought it was a sexist, you know, I had all kinds of, and it, and it, and it kind of is. is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was written in 1935. It's a product of its time. Yes. That's right. And I think, and I do think people would hate me to say this, but they get so crazy about changing stuff. And it's like, I think some of it needs to be changed, but oh, well. (laughs) <laughs> but another, you know, another book that I think really has helped my recovery, obviously the language of letting go by Melody Beattie, but comfortable with uncertainty by Pema Chodron it was mm. like a game changer too. So that was, that's been a great book. Love that. There's that's, a lot of them, but yeah. 40 years almost of continuous recovery. I'm going to imagine there's a book or two. <laughs> <laughs> that had yeah. an impact on you, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love that. And comfortable with uncertainty is a new recommendation here on the Way Out podcast. So oh, thank you for it. that. Okay. Well, and I'm also I just got recently, which I love, is Mark Nepo. I think it's called On Awakening, and it's a daily reader. And it's funny because I found out about it because Jamie Lee Curtis was you know, on the news because the Oscars and she's been sober a really long time. Yes. And they asked her what helps you stay sober. And she talked about this daily reader. And then I ended up getting it just recently. And it's great. His name is Mark N-E-P-O. And the 20th anniversary just came out really good. Another new one, which I absolutely (laughs) love. So check the show notes right now for those amazing book recommendations. Dr. Sarah, what is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery thus far? Wow. Gosh, that's huge. Um, 
God, there's so many things, but I guess I would say no matter what happens, everything passes. I mean, mm. you know, to not get too attached to any of it because, you know, not get too attached to the good stuff or the bad stuff. I yeah. mean, that is being human, right? Yeah. I mean, we can just, you know, make up stories about anything. We can make up meaning about anything. And, you know, that's up to you. So stuff passes. You can and get through it. I love that. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. And yep. that goes too to your point about the Buddhism principle of attachment. Right. Not getting too attached to too wrapped up into anything. To anything. I mean, I feel like someone said recently, you know, the culture now they really felt as though people are so addicted to significance. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I have an Instagram account. I have, you know, it's like, and it's like everyone's trying. And to me, it's just mass codependency because basically I'm basing how I feel about myself on who's responding to me, which is codependency. My self-esteem is contingent on yes. how many shares yeah. likes that's right and views. just as many people cannot like you as like you so it's like absolutely. it's all perspective absolutely all perspective and all of that yeah. is external validation right yeah develop a relationship with something outside of yourself i mean selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles right i'm not going to have the answers i have to get out of myself so whether it's a higher power or some kind of spiritual life or you know, connections with others or, you know. And hopefully all of the above. Whatever. Yeah, whatever makes, whatever works for you. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. But you don't have, the, but it's just trusting that you may not have all the answers. It's the smartest people I saw as clients that were the hardest ones because they really believed my brain is going to help me and it doesn't. Not with addiction. It says that in the big book and that's so fundamentally true that intellectualism is not an asset no not in recovery it can actually yeah. be a liability that's right yeah yeah you can't talk yourself into this stuff that's it that's it like and, and you can't you can't intellectualize a recovery it's an emotional journey it's a spiritual journey it's largely not an intellectual journey. No, and if you find yourself spinning in your head, usually it's because you're not getting in touch with something inside. Absolutely. I mean, obsessive thinking is just another, can be another distraction to avoid what's happening. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. And, to, and, and intellectualism, I should say, can help in certain instances, but it sure. cannot be the center for me. It can't be. Yes. It can't be. I can't recover at the altar of intellectualism. Yes. Yes. Dr. Sarah, what's the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? <laughs> Parenting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think, I don't know. If, I don't know. I just felt like I had this being and I wanted to do it well. And yeah. I had no idea how to do it. And I needed a lot of help. I read a lot of books. I talked to a lot of people. And I think the problem with that is a lot of parents think that they're supposed to know what to do. 
So there's all this shame. Yeah, around like not knowing. When I was so clear that I didn't know, so I for some reason was comfortable like calling my brother or calling this person or buying this book. Um, and I think it's a hard job and I think people just try to do it alone without help. Yeah. And there's a lot to learn because the thing with parenting too is our own activations get act, get triggered all the time because our kids can activate us like no other people. Right. Without yeah. question. Boy, I can relate to that. And yeah. my parenting journey is so intertwined with my addiction and alcoholism and my recovery journey. Yes. And I'm so grateful today to have a program that enables me to work through a, a lot of that divorce guilt and then addiction and alcoholism guilt and be able to live one day at a time trying to be the best example of recovery I can be, focus on me and leave it in my higher powers hands in terms of the rest of it, right? Not try yes. to like make them okay, make them successful so I'm okay, kind of, you know? Yes. And, and recovery allowed me to let go of that. Yes. That my serenity and my happiness is not contingent on the outcome of my children. Absolutely. And they have a God too. Like that's yeah. something a friend said to me and I was like, oh gosh, right. Yeah. Yes. They yeah. have a higher power and they have part. their own journey. Yeah. Right. And, yes. and I could right. be available to them and that's important and, and, and show love to them. Yes. And that's important. And that's important in so many ways, but, but let them do their journey. Yes. Easier said self-esteem. Yes. Easier said than done. Much easier said than done. <laughs> oh. I have had to zip it so many times. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Sarah, what is the greatest success you've had in recovery thus far? Parenting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I yes. mean, seriously, it's like I you know, it's I don't know, just, I, I only had one child and I don't know how people do it. Like to me, to do it and have awareness about it was really, is so rewarding. Yeah. Like seeing my son now have some successes is just such an amazing feeling. And yet I think we have to just acknowledge, you know, it's something that is hard and we all need help with it. Yeah. Yeah, without question. I have two children. Yes. And I would say that prior to becoming a parent, I was squarely in the nurture camp. Yes. Okay? We're a product of our parents. And, uh, yeah. and there's a lot to that. There's no question. But having two kids, there's a lot to the nature thing, too. Okay. Yes. Those two kids are polar opposites and they were raised at the same you know right <laughs> it's amazing it's both yes it is both it is both right. because they couldn't right. be more different in yes. so many ways right yes. so right. and 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 there's no question 
the they are also very much a product of their upbringing. Right. Sure. Right? Yeah. Know? So yeah. But it, but it is funny because uh, boy, I was squarely in the nurture camp until you I hear had. that all the time, and then people say, "My two kids are so different." Yeah, right. Exactly, right. Exactly. All right. The next one's a doozy, and then okay. we end with a fun one. Okay. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Haven't forgiven myself. You know, it's funny because when you were talking about forgiveness, there's a great quote from Pam Grout. And she says, forgiveness is your get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. And I love that because I think for me, the hardest thing to forgive myself for was my behavior, uh, my sexual behavior when I was using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I got married and just having this, you know, it's not that I don't forgive myself, but I can still feel grief around it. Yeah. Like the absurdity of sharing your body with so many people that, you know, I mean, it's just so absurd. Yeah. Um. So that I think, I mean, I, I definitely, it's like an ongoing thing, but um. That's the first thing that comes to mind. That's super relatable, I think, for a lot of women. Yes. And let's be real. The the experience of women in active addiction and alcoholism and then coming into recovery around that specifically, that's extremely real. Yes. And plays a big part in the recovery process, whether yes. they experience sexual assault whether they just found themselves or put themselves in situations they would never in a million years put themselves in or a combination of the two. That's an extremely real piece of yes. Yes. Women in recovery. And I wonder too, Dr. Sarah, if that has an effect on to the rates of female recovery versus male recovery, because they're different and you know, um, uh, the trauma. Right. Right. Um, Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but I do know that so many women I work with, yeah, all have some kind of story around that stuff. That and trauma you know around I mean? that, right? Yeah, And right. for guys, though, it's there's more shame even there. I mean, a lot of guys have, you know, the adolescent mutual masturbation fest and then think they're gay and have all right. shame. And I mean, so... <laughs> I mean, for guys, it's it can be just as shameful. Yeah, but there's in a, a lot there. Way. Well, or they they experience one. their own abuse, and uh, you know that's absolutely yeah. That's extremely real, and uh, it's uh, from a male perspective, uh, still not okay to talk about it in many ways, right? right? right. Like it's right. still many men feel that that's not something that they can talk. I about. I know, which is too bad. It really it's is such a source of shame. Yes. It is. But I can super relate to it. A lot of us can super relate to, I think, the experience of looking back at behaviors and being that is so far removed right. from the person I am today. Right. And it's in such direct violation to my core yes. identity and values that it's hard to reckon with it. Right. When you think about some of the behaviors that we um, that we did, that we, some of the behavior that we yes. uh, had when well, we were. I mean, right. Yeah. And I mean, that's what the men's are for, right? With, with other people. Yeah. But when it comes to forgiving ourselves and letting ourselves off the hook, and, you know, I think it's that saying in the big book that I'm going to butcher, but about, 
you know, remembering that these things happen so I could be there for someone else who has gone through it and, and be available to them to make them feel okay about it. And hundred you know, yes. percent service around. Yes. That. Yeah. Yes. We could turn it into purpose. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. forgiveness is one of the greatest gifts I can continue to give myself. And I uh, practice it every day. Yes. It is a gift we can give ourselves. Absolutely. Because otherwise it's just, we just get in the way of not being of service. A hundred percent. A hundred and being able to turn it into purpose. Yes. Last question. And here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you? I guess Amazing Grace. That's the first thing that comes to mind. That's an you amazing know? song. I love that song. Yeah, and it's I mean, super appropriate. It's yeah. Absolutely. I, a hundred percent. Every time yeah. I listen to that song, think about my recovery. Right. Right. Every single time. Because I do feel like I've been given lost. second yeah. chance and I was lost and now I've been found in this. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's got recovery written all over it. I love that. That's tremendous. Yes. Check the show notes right now for all of Dr. Sarah's amazing quit lit recommendations, as well as her best piece of recovery advice and her recovery song recommendation, (laughs) Amazing Grace, which I adore. (laughs) Yes, we just started a few months ago a YouTube channel called Leaving Crazy Town with Finn and Sarah. He's a buddy of mine, an attorney. He's been sober also, struggling with codependency. And we try to have a sense of humor and we address topics each week. So definitely check that out too. Excellent. So check the show notes right now for the YouTube channel for the link to Dr. Sarah's brand new book, co-crazy one psychologist's recovery from codependency and addiction a (laughs) memoir and roadmap to freedom check the show notes for her quitlet recommendations her best piece of recovery advice and that amazing song amazing grace all in the show notes dr sarah Thank you so much for sharing your journey to and through recovery with us to this point. This has been absolutely amazing. You were a delight. Thank you so much, Charles. It's always great talking recovery. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.